This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Welcome to the MDT Podcast. I'm Ian Wilkinson. And I'm Joe Preston. And this week, we're going to be talking about pain control in older adults. Some of the things we're going to talk through are the different types of pain that there are, uh, not just in older adults, but in all adults. And sort of have a think about your role in the assessment and management of pain in older people. The MDT Podcast. So we have some feedback from last week's episode. And last week we were talking about capacity and a bit of the feedback was we probably didn't mention the important role of social workers enough. And I think that's a really, really good point, actually. And often adult services and social workers that work with older people are a really key part, uh, particularly of the best interest decisions uh, for patients who don't have capacity because they're often the best interest assessor, particularly in the community. And I guess just leading on from that, we don't have a social worker on our faculty. So if you are a social worker that works with older people and would like to be involved with the faculty, please do drop us a line. You can contact us via the website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. And there's a a box in there where you can send us an email. So please do get in touch. Uh, We do have a space on our faculty for a social worker. And the second bit of feedback we have this week is we've had a few guesses this week for the MD teaser. People have guessed, is it a slide sheet? I'm afraid it's not. Is it a specimen pot? It is not. And is it a bedpan? It is not. So there'll be another clue at the end of this episode. And the final thing is we would like to just slightly tweak our website a little bit and turn it into something that's a really valuable and useful resource for you. So if you have any examples of resources that will be useful to the multidisciplinary audience, then please do send them to us and we will fit them into the relevant episode on the website. And you can contact us via Twitter, which is MDT underscore podcast, or via Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast, or via the website. The MDT podcast. So as always, we have several members of our MDT faculty contributing to each episode. And this time we have Adam Buckler, a pharmacist, Sarah Jane Ryan, a physiotherapist, and Lucy Frost, a dementia nurse specialist. As we said, this episode we're talking about pain. And as ever, we've gone and found a multidisciplinary team working in one of our hospitals. And we've had a chat to them about what pain means to each of them. Or how they recognise pain in their daily work. Yeah. I'm an occupational therapist on a trauma orthopaedic ward. um, And pain is a really important thing for me to think about because it can have a big impact on my patient's mood and motivation when it comes to therapy. It's really important for me to have a look at whether they're having regular pain relief as they should be prior to sessions and feeding back to the doctors to ensure that adjustments can be made if needed. I also find it's really important to manage the patient's expectations, particularly if they've had an operation, for them to understand that there will be a degree of pain, but this isn't necessarily bad and finding that balance with pain relief. I'm a specialty doctor in care of the elderly. And at this moment, I am posted in orthogeriatric wards. So I look after patients who had fracture, neck or femur, and has been operated. And we look after them following the operation until they go home. For me, pain is important because if someone is in a lot of pain after the operation, uh, their rehabilitation is delayed. 
and uh, the least I can do for someone who has gone through the trauma of a fractured bone and surgery uh, is to give them some pain relief and comfort. So it is very important we review pain every day and we try to alleviate their symptoms as much as possible. For this, my main help comes from the physiotherapists who always gives us feedback about whether someone is in pain or not. We also have to remember that uh, for frail elderly patients who are in pain, if we give them too much painkillers, some of which has side effect of causing drowsiness and delirium, we might harm them rather than benefit or uh, improve their uh, rehabilitation. So it's a, it's a fine balance which we always have to consider when we give any pain relief. I'm a physiotherapist on a trauma and orthopaedic ward. Pain is probably our biggest um, barrier that we get with patients. Um, they're quite surprised when we go to them day one asking them to get out of bed. It's important that they understand that how important it is for them to move as soon as possible to ensure that they maintain muscle strength, length, joint range of movement and their functional ability. If pain is a limiting factor, then patients generally become more static and this then associates stiffness and then that causes more pain. This then causes a vicious cycle and that's really difficult for us to break. So just listening to that, and I think we know this anyway, that there are so many opportunities during the day in different ways to recognise pain in older adults. Yeah, and it affects each member of the MDT in a slightly different way with Mm. what they're trying to do with patients and their interaction with patients. Mm. I think the biggest thing there is to actually make sure it's all brought together, that if you're recognising it in one area, that you're telling someone else so that the whole group can act on it and and, and preempt any pain that they might have in, in the future. And so when we think about pain, you know, we have to start with, well, what is pain? You know, we all sort of intuitively... Very philosophical. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, we all intuitively know, you know, it's when something hurts. But but really, what what actually is it? Yeah. So I'll kick off with a sort of a definition. So I think pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with an actual or potential tissue damage and is described in terms of that damage. I think it's important to remember that pain is always a subjective experience. And I remember having my wisdom teeth taken out while I was doing a psychiatry placement and it really kind of got me attuned to personal experiences and what's real for different people and the dentist said to me that can't be painful I've already given you the most painkiller there is I was like well it it is hurting to me Mm. so it doesn't matter if you say I've had the right amount or it's in the right place it hurts right now yeah and that's the first time that kind of clicked into place for me you can't say someone isn't in pain no exactly it's very much it's pain is your feeling yeah and I think the other bit from that definition that that I quite liked and maybe I'd not forgotten but maybe not thought about for a while is the fact that you know it is tissue damage Mm. in some form or another you know if you've broken a bone then then clearly it's damaged but you know osteoarthritis is damaged Mm -hmm. if you've got an infection or cellulitis or something that's painful that's tissue damage there's there's process that's driving it yeah exactly and that definition that we gave comes from the international association for the study of pain and as ever we'll reference this in our show notes so you can uh, look it up So as you say, though, moving on to that kind of practical element of is this a kind of chronic pain or how is this pain arising from this person? It's quite an important distinction to have about what's causing the pain and also the potential long term effects of any medication that you might put that person on alongside their comorbidities. So really working out what it is and seeing if you can address that problem and get rid of the cause of that pain in the first instance is is what you should do. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah. 
And it's also, it's really underreported mm, and probably undertreated in older people, especially yeah. patients with cognitive impairment. Yeah. And we sort of touched on that a little bit in the delirium episode when we talked about the fact that pain can cause delirium, but also mm. pain relief can cause delirium. Yeah. And really it's important to go looking for it. And I think the same sort of thing is true here with pain. It's important to go looking for pain. Because mm. if you don't ask, people may not tell you or they'll say, oh, well, you know, the pain's not too bad. But actually, when you speak to the therapist later on, when they try to stand them and walk them, actually, the pain is really, it's a limiting, really yeah. limiting factor. And so, it, you know, you do have to go looking, yeah. I think. And uh, it does link back to one of the things we mentioned in that episode on delirium, where that study in residential settings, where they gave paracetamol to people that were agitated and found that it reduced the... Reduced the agitation, agitation. and reduced the need for antipsychotics. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start with some real basics of physiology of pain here. How you sense it, where it comes from, how you interpret it, so that you can understand each stage of the pain process and therefore why some of the interventions may work. So we need a concrete example. So let us imagine that you're at home and you're doing some DIY. And as I always am. As, as, as Jo often is. She often says, I've been doing some DIY. So you're, you're hammering something into some of your IKEA furniture. What? And then you miss the nail and you hit your thumb Mm -hmm. so at that point you hit your thumb the nerve fibers the receptors in the skin Mm -hmm. are stimulated by this mechanical stimulus they convert that into an electrical impulse that travels up the nerves Mm -hmm. now there are two types of nerve fibers fast ones and slow ones fast ones and slow ones alpha ones and c ones Mm -hmm. so first of all there's the fast ones they're super fast they whiz all the way up to the spinal cord and trigger a reflex action. So that's when you drop the hammer or you drop the nail and you move and your hand out of the way. Straight out of the way. Yeah. Then you've got your uh, slower fibres, which contain a bit more information. So instead of just stopping at the spinal cord, they go to the spinal cord, but then they travel up the spinal cord in the dorsal column to the thalamus in the brain, which is the area of the brain that interprets um, and starts to distribute that pain information that is received. And that can go to all different areas of the brain. As we said, this is about um, sensation. It's about the motor response that you need afterwards. It's about the emotional response. So all of those things that happens in the brain, the thalamus kind of starts to ping it out to wherever it needs. And that explains why that throbbing pain that you then get Mm -hmm. takes, you know, a couple more seconds to develop. Yeah. Yeah. That's everything else. So I came up with uh, what I think is quite a nice analogy. You can tell me if you disagree. And we've had quite a few paramedics listening, so we thought we'd do a bit of an emergency scenario analogy for the fast and the slow fibres and the response. So we're going to say there's been a car crash, and your first responders, your maybe your St John's ambulance who are passing by, or your fire brigade, um, they're there to clear the immediate danger. They're yep. there to do a bit of basic life support <coughs> to remove you from that immediate harm, working to algorithm, no nonsense, just make the place safe. Yeah. Fast fibres to the point Absolutely. get your hand out of the way so the slow fibers are your paramedic crews that come along they are your hems crew so they come along and they start doing your advanced life support they start doing much more advanced things with the area and delivering treatment they bring equipment and medications along so that's that's what your your c fibers do you get your response from your brain to increase your blood supply to activate platelets do all of this other kind of stuff and that's not to say they're slow no. um, they're, they're still super fast but just not quite as fast as the other response yeah And then after that, you then get tissue damage and you get cytokines, so 
uh, chemicals that, mm-hmm. that pull in responses and pull in other chemicals to do stuff and, and change the physiology in that little bit of the, the body to cause inflammation and swelling and things like that. And those chemicals also stimulate the nerve endings mm-hmm. to continue that pain response, which is why if you've banged your thumb and it swells up and it's sore, that's why it's still sore mm. until the swelling and everything has gone away. But you can interfere with that a little bit, can't you? Yeah. So you've got this nerve signal that's going up to the brain and you can interfere with it a little bit because if you, for example, rub the area as soon as you bang it, you're stimulating those fast fibres. Ian's rubbing his hand. I'm rubbing my hand out, yeah. So you're stimulating the fast fibres and what can happen is that that sort of blocks some of the slow fibre signals getting up there. And so it can take away some of the pain. Mm. And if you want to read a bit more, that's called gait theory. And then you've got endogenous opioids as well, haven't you, that are released in exercise. That's one of the, the theories that exercise and physiotherapy and things can help with with some, some elements of pain. Yeah. And then you've then got the signals then that come back down from the brain and they're a mixture of nerves that use serotonin at the nerve transmitters Mm -hmm. and noradrenaline. And you can sometimes use some of the antidepressant medications Mm -hmm. such as SSRIs. Amitriptyline. Amitriptyline. Tricyclic. Or tricyclics, yeah, Mm -hmm. to interfere with that response to adapt some of the longer-term responses to the pain. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different ways of managing pain, and we're going to talk through some of the pharmacological measures Mm -hmm. now, but it's important to remember that there are non-pharmacological measures but the reason we wanted to talk about this was that in our one of our faculty meetings we were talking with the people and and one of the things that came out of it is often when people come back off rotation the whys the wherefores the hows of some of the pain relief was something that people didn't didn't yeah. really get so we thought we'd hopefully try and yeah. address that a little bit we were worried this would be a bit too medicky or a bit too um pharmacy but actually i think it's something that a basic understanding of these things is really useful for for everyone so That's we're going to focus on the cause of the pain and then the drug therapy to treat it. So there are a few different types of pain. Do you want to talk so, us through them? Yeah. So we've got pain caused by inflammation, mm-hmm. such as like rheumatoid arthritis in a joint yep. when it's all inflamed. We've got direct injury to a nerve or nerve endings, mm-hmm. like when you have surgical damage or when you've got a disc prolapse pressing on a nerve. We've got pain when there is peripheral neuropathy, so where the nerve has, has died or become damaged for a reason. Then we've got pain that could be due to an underlying problem within the spinal cord or up in the brain where you you feel that there's pain even though there's no obvious stimulus to it. Mm. So if you've some people that have had a stroke in the thalamus, um, they can feel like there's ongoing intractable pain, but actually there's no stimulus to cause it. Which links back, I think, to what we were saying earlier about mm. it being a subjective thing. It's, it's your yeah. feeling. And then moving on from that, there's a very similar thing where you have um, abnormal activity in the nerve circuits that you perceive as pain. So, for example, phantom limb pain. Yeah. Um, and then also the psychological aspects of pain. So, as we said, it's linked into emotional responses that we have. And so that can make it very difficult to treat when they become a significant contributor to things, yeah. which they often do in chronic pain. And that's something that palliative care, um, they're very good at treating pain for lots of different reasons. But one is that they pay particular attention to, to this area. I think so, it's something we often miss in hospital. Yeah, definitely. So they're the six main causes of pain, um, I think, as far as we're concerned. But if you think there are others, please do let us know. And we're now just going to 
talk through some basic painkillers, really. Yeah. And talk through how they work, what they do, and what they might be useful for. And some common uh, kind of troubleshooting things for, for, the, for each type of pain relief. Yeah. So we're going to work up the World Health Organization ladder, which many of you will have heard of and lots of you will have seen. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. Um, and it's a stepwise approach to starting with some basic painkillers and then moving up the ladder each time. So what's first? The first is good old trusty paracetamol. Good. It's safe. There are very few contraindications to use of paracetamol yep. at all, really, apart from full-on liver failure, in which yeah. case you should uh, check with the doctor. But but generally, even in mild liver failure, you can use paracetamol yep. relatively safely. It's one dose, other than people who are very thin. Mm-hmm. So if you're less than 50 kilos, one paracetamol, otherwise it's two, which is one gram, four times a day. Yes, it's four times a day. That's the only bind with it, really. And how it works... It's quite a nice sort of foundation. It's a good baseline-level painkiller. It's, on average, a little bit weaker than a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that we'll talk about in a minute, Um, but it's often better tolerated. Mm -hmm. I think it's fairly safe to say that the way that it works is not really well understood. No. It, it, certainly, it just does. Yeah. And it's one of those things that if it came along these days, it probably wouldn't get approved because no one yeah. can really prove how it works, but it does. What it does do that we know, it, it affects COX-1 and COX-2, which are parts of the inflammation cascade, and also affects prostaglandin synthesis. Which is, we're going to come on to next, is how the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories yeah. work. So it has some similar actions and some crossover yeah. there. So. But it doesn't really have the anti-inflammatory effects of those. No, so it doesn't really suppress the the inflammation that's going on there. Uh, so, for example, if you had someone with an inflammatory condition like rheumatoid arthritis or acute gout, it probably will help with that, but it's not really going to target the inflammation specifically. Yeah. It's got both central and peripheral effects. So, moving on, now we'll talk about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Mm-hmm. I think we should just have a brief cul-de-sac sojourn into talking about steroids (laughs) in that they are there they sometimes have pain relieving effects in for example something like rheumatoid arthritis where you have lots of inflammation and it's the inflammation that's the driver of the Mm. pain then steroids can be used by themselves themselves specifically to reduce the inflammation and almost as a side effect reduce the pain but they are not painkillers they are treating that very much the underlying condition whereas non-steroidals are treating the inflammation that has happened due to whatever cause Um, but in in a similar way so they're non-steroidal anti-inflammatories so the first of which is ibuprofen it's um, a non-selective inhibitor of the COX-1 and COX-2s. And that's cyclooxygen. Oh, I can never say it. <laughs> so let's just call them COX-1 oxy- and yeah, COX-2. Yeah, we'll just, yeah, you can look it up. <laughs> you can look it up. So it has slightly less anti-inflammatory properties than some of the other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like diclofenac and things like that. But it does have quite a good analgesic and antipyretic role, really, so lowering yeah. the temperature as well. So Sometimes you often forget that it can do that, but it's, yeah. it's useful to that. It, however, does have some side effects. And particularly in older adults, so anyone over 65, you really want to be thinking twice about whether you want to use it. And um, You probably wouldn't. And if you're going to, you'd probably think about using it just as a very short course for a defined um, reason. The reasons it's less safe are things like um, bleeding. So it has both an effect on 
platelet activity, uh, but it also can cause um, peptic ulcers, so in the stomach or the duodenum. It also can cause renal failure sometimes. Yeah, it can um, induce asthma if someone's got asthma. Yeah, yeah, so we would avoid it in people that have got asthma. We would avoid it in people who have already got some renal disease because we wouldn't want to push either of those things over the edge. Sometimes it's useful to ask people, have you taken ibuprofen? Do you take it at home? How do you get on with it? Yeah. Because especially asthmatics will know whether or not they can take it or yeah. not. Yeah. And it's important to know that the side effects are systemic, not local. And by that, I mean if you take an ibuprofen gel and put it on your leg, then you will get the same side effects. So even that peptic ulcer side effect can come from putting a local application. It's not the drug having that yeah. effect on the stomach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's often a bit less, isn't it? Because the total dose is a bit less. But it can definitely happen. Um, I've seen it with Minana. Have you? Yeah. Oh dear. She, she's very upset by ibuprofen gel. We have to avoid it completely now. Yeah. Mm. And so anti-inflammatories, there are different types, mm -hmm. ranging from aspirin. Which has a very mild non-steroidal anti-inflammatory yes. effect. The chemical yeah. formula for aspirin was traded as part of one of the reparations after no, the World really? War. Yeah, yeah. And you That'll got be in the show notes. You got from aspirin all the way up to <laughs> ibuprofen, and then we've got naproxen and diclofenac. Mm -hmm. And you can go and look it up or speak to your pharmacist. Each of them has slightly different properties as mm -hmm. to whether or not they're more anti-inflammatory or analgesic. And because of the effects on bleeding, you really want to be very careful in someone who's using other anticoagulants. So anyone yeah. on a NOAC, anyone on a... Warfarin. On warfarin, yeah, you really want to think yeah. twice. So then the next step up, we then get to what's called the weak opioids. Mm -hmm. So these are things like codeine and dihydrocodeine, yeah. pretty much. They're basically the main the two, two isn't it? Yeah. aren't they? Yeah. So codeine is a prodrug, which means that it splits into a number of different active components, one of which is morphine. And that conversion can be difficult to predict in different people. So some people metabolise it very well and some people don't, um, but then they still do get the side effects. Yeah. So that's the difference. And the side effects are what? Constipation, confusion. Drowsiness. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the nicest thing, I No, I, I no. generally warn people if we're going to put them on it that those are things that are going to happen. So you try and preempt some of those side effects by co-prescribing a laxative, things like that. Yeah, dangerous in overdose, all the opioids. Mm. Um, so dihydrocodone is a little bit stronger than codeine, uh, but not much. Yeah. And then the next step up the ladder, feel, always feels like, it, if you talk to patients, it always feels like you're now taking four steps up the ladder because then suddenly you're into the strong opioids. Yeah. And the archetypal strong opioid is morphine. Morphine. So this works by its action on the opioid receptors, mm -hmm. and there are three of those. And they're present, and this is important, in many different regions of the nervous system. Um, and they're involved with transmitting pain stimuli and sort of the control mechanisms around that. And morphine acts on the mu receptors, that's M-U, mu, and produces its pain relief by acting in a number of different places. It can act local to where the pain starts... Okay. It can act central, so within the brain, mm -hmm. and then it can also act on those nerve cells coming back down from the brain, mm -hmm. bringing the, the sort of the ongoing response that can act on those as well. So morphine is, you know, it's the painkiller. It's the one everyone knows. We, we know it works. But it's also the one that people get quite nervous about using. And that's because, it again, it has quite a lot of side effects, particularly in older adults. They're quite prone to these. It's, for several different reasons. So one of the, the common side effects, as we've mentioned, is constipation, uh, confusion. It can cause respiratory depression, so people can slow their breathing and shallow their breathing. And that's if you have far too much on board, so yep. moving into the kind of toxicity side of things. 
Um, it can cause a bit of sedation. It quite, quite commonly causes a rash. Yes. You get a bit, of a bit of a histamine release. Some people think it's related to an allergic reaction, but no. it's often not. It's just... It's not an allergy. It's no. just a histamine release. Yeah. yeah. And it can also cause some nausea. So co-prescribing an anti-sickness medication with morphine is very sensible. Also prescribing a laxative is very sensible. Yes. So one of the big things that people worry about is toxicity, isn't it? So I thought we'd talk next about the signs of toxicity, how you might recognise it if it's happening. Um, and there are some kind of early stages uh, which are a bit more subtle and then um, the kind of full-on toxicity end of things. Yeah. So the more subtle things are things like... So you can get little jerks mm-hmm. um, where people you know twitch. You can get a tremor sometimes yeah. and you can get quite small pupils. Mm. That's quite a late one, the pupils, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And then as things progress on, you can get respiratory depression. Mm-hmm. So the breathing, uh, as you said, reduces and shallows. And you can also then get sedation. Um, you can build up tolerance to it. So, so you start off with a low dose, low which dose, works. Yeah. Um, and then once you've been on it for a little while, you actually need more to yeah. get the same analgesic um, benefit. And that's, you know, it's difficult then to work out whether it's that the pain is getting worse or whether the person is tolerating it more. That can be quite difficult. So whenever someone's on morphine, you need to keep quite a close eye on them and be yeah. reviewing it quite often. One of the things, especially older people, um, I find compared to younger people when you offer them morphine, is that they're really worried about addiction. Mm. And that is one side effect, if you want to call it a side effect, that, that it can be quite addictive. So again, if people's pain uh, or the, their need for it is escalating, having a think about whether they may be becoming addicted to it is something to think about. Yeah. But I wouldn't just stop you... it, though, because it's difficult. Because yeah. if you stop it, people are going to have pain again. Yeah. So you have to think about what you're going to substitute mm and how you're going to manage the pain yeah. and which of the other medications we've talked about or some of the non-pharmacological mm-hmm. treatments. So if you use hot or cold alternating temperatures or if you're going to use rubbing or if you're going to use a TENS machine or something else to try and yeah. provide the pain relief to take away the morphine. So you can give it in a number of different ways. Mm. It comes as a, as a liquid, as a short-acting preparation that works mm. swiftly but doesn't last very long. And then also comes as a tablet that's twice a day, so it lasts 12 hours. Mm. And you can add up how much of the short-acting or breakthrough somebody has needed, and you can bundle it together into the 12-hourly tablets to make sure that someone's pain-free all the time. And that gives you a good baseline yeah. uh, pain control rather than with the short-acting, obviously it lasts up to four hours, yeah. isn't it? So you get a bit of a peak a bit and of an yeah. So um, it's important to review people that are having that um, as required and try and try and always be putting it into their background yeah. pain relief. And there are other different ways that you can give it. So morphine can be given subcutaneously, it can be given intravenously as well. Yeah. So if someone can't swallow, then there are other ways to, to get that in. And there are good dose um, conversion charts that you can use. And my favourite is the Palliative Care Network Guidelines. Have you seen that website? Mm, it's, it's good, isn't it? Brilliant. Yeah. Very good. And I'm going to just add in one last comment about morphine. And this is a comment that an A&E consultant I once worked for told me when I first started working in A&E. And I'm, I'm going to say it, and we're not going to explain it, and you can just go away and look it up. And he said to me, there's more to life than the sphincter of Oddie. Okay. It's cryptic. Go away, look it up, let us know what he meant. Shall we have a quick whiz through some of the other strong opioids? Yeah, so, so quick fire tramadol thoughts don't really like it no it's horrible it's got a lot of side effects it affects lots of different receptors mm. no not a fan yeah quite often causes hallucinations yes. in older adults works um, it's a painkiller it's it, a painkiller it does work but, yeah it's not, not a, a pure myself. mu opioid receptor agonist it's not pure opioid it 
affects oh, it the affects serotonin. serotonin, MMDA, yeah. muscarinic. And that's why uh, it gives receptors. you all of those it, other side effects that we just don't want in older adults. So their their blood brain barriers are much more permeable. They're just they're just so much more susceptible. Noradrenaline reuptake. Just, it, just it's everything. Let's just not, let's just not yeah. use tramadol in older adults, please. Uh, oxycodone, Joe. <laughs> oxycodone is a synthetic type of morphine, and it's safer in renal impairment. Yep. So morphine accumulates in renal impairment. Those, yeah. That's moxicodone fact. Yeah, good. Next, fentanyl. Fentanyl, super strong. Doses in micrograms, not milligrams, and comes as a patch. Very, very And sh- you can use it intranasally as well. Can you? In kids, yeah. Um, so it's used in theatre quite often. It's If you give it intravenous or subcut, it's very, 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 very short-acting. So it's hardly ever used in that circumstance. Yeah. Sometimes it's used in syringe drivers in advanced renal failure. And lozenges. And lozenges. Yes. yes. Really good for dressing changes because it works quickly yeah. um, over that time. So that's the, um, that's the mm. non-patch version. The patch version is for quite high levels of opioid need. It's every three days usually, isn't it, the fentanyl patch? You change it? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, which brings us nicely on to buprenorphine patches, which is a milder opioid version of the fentanyl, so the lower doses of opioids. So actually the starting dose of buprenorphine, this is one of my favourite facts. I've got several opioid facts. Well, it's one of my favourites. The starting dose of the buprenorphine patch is the same as giving someone codeine four times a day. So they say. Um, <laughs> theoretically, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, does it? No. So thinking about delirium, effects. maybe, sh- perhaps, yeah. maybe. But the blood-brain barrier is less secure in older people. Yeah, so, so it can cause Theoretically, it. it should cause less delirium, but it doesn't always hold true. Yeah. Uh, it does take quite a while to get in and a little time to get out. Yeah, so, so it, takes, patches, it takes a couple of days to really start kicking in once you put the patch yeah. on. So that's a quick run-through of the analgesics. We were thinking about talking about some of the analgesic assessment tools, mm. but I'm conscious that, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit quite now. Episode, yeah, it's quite so. full already. So I think we're going to draw a line there. But if you would like us to talk about analgesic assessment tools and the Abbey Pain scale and some of the visual analogue scales and some of the other smiley face scales and things, then let us know and we will make an episode purely talking about analgesic assessment methods. So to contact us, you can drop us a line via our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or on Twitter um, at MDT underscore podcasts. Or on our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. The MDT podcast. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's the MDTzer, the catchily titled MDT item guessing game, where we read out a series of increasingly more simple clues about an item that a member of the MDT might use. So, Joe, would you like to go first this week? Are you ready? I'm ready. This is a prosthetic device. That an MDT would use? You can't ask for clues. You get given the clues. Okay. Um, is it a hearing aid? It is not a hearing aid. No. Okay. They are, however, free on the NHS. Are they glasses? They are not. They are, however, frequently lost or forgotten. And it's not a hearing aid, which is an excellent title for a podcast, by the way. <laughs> um, I have to press you for an answer. I don't know. Okay, I'll give you an easier clue. 
if you lose weight, you quite often need to get a replacement. If you lose weight, you get a replacement. It's a prosthetic device that gets lost. An abdominal truss? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. No, but that's... I can see where you went with yeah. the lose weight. Okay, yeah, no. Last and final clue. It's your last chance. You ready? Mm-hmm. It is essential for more than one function and it's needed multiple times a day. Oh, um, the more than one function is the key there. I have no idea. Dentures. Boo. <laughs> He's sulking. Too hard. There's <laughs> no such thing, that's the game, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> I might have to rewrite my clues now then. Okay. All right, I'm ready. So... First clue. Mm -hmm. This item can be made from china, plastic or paper. A cup. No. Second clue. This item can be disposable or reusable. A bowl? No. Uh, this item can be used at home or in the hospital. Oh, Ian. These are not really helpful clues. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next. Uh, disposable ones cost pennies, reusable ones cost pounds. I mean, that's true of pretty much anything made of paper or china, is it not? Well, yeah, and this item. Okay, next clue. Oh, okay. So, on the ward, they're kept in a special room. I oh, know, I don't know. What was it? It was a urine bottle. A china urine bottle? Yeah, old school. I don't like that. <laughs> That, all, lots of those clues I think we, we call that a draw. exactly the same thing. I think we call At least that... mine described a different aspect. We'll call that a draw this week. Time. We'll call it a draw. So because we've... technically it is, but yes, exactly. I don't think your clues are fair. But... <laughs> but we do have a clue for you. For we do. the ongoing MD teaser. So this is the third clue. It's my favourite clue. In other settings, it goes well with an umbrella. Good clue. So what do you think it is? Let us know using the hashtag MDTeaser on Twitter or on Facebook. Well, you don't have to use a hashtag. No, but we'll if you use a hashtag, anyway. then you just guess anyway. Yeah. yeah. Or if you want to keep quiet and you don't want anyone to know your guess, go to the website and send us a message through the website. Yes. And that, I think, about wraps up this episode. Yes. We have talked through some of the basics of what pain is. Pain physiology. Pain physiology. We've talked about some of the basics for different types of painkillers, mm -hmm. the rationale for their use, and the ins and outs of some of them, some tips and practicalities for some of the common painkillers. As we said, if you want more of this, then let us know some topics mm. that you'd like us to cover and we'll pop them uh, into the next series. And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.